Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Diane Flint about her book, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. Diane started Foggy Ridge Cider in 1997. After over 20 years growing fruit and making cider, Foggy Ridge now focuses solely on growing the fruit we're here to discuss, apples. (laughs) Welcome, Diane. It's so great to have you here today. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to talk apples with you, and I understand you are an apple enthusiast and a part-time forager, and I know we have a lot in common already. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, but I'd like to get to start by getting to know you a little bit better. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a, a cider maker and a writer? Sure, sure. I, I came to growing things as a very young person. I grew up in a small town in Georgia. My grandparents were farmers and lived, oh, 15 miles or so away. We visited them often. Um, weekly off uh, sometime in parts of the year uh, every weekend we would go over and run around the farm and help a little bit with farming and it was a it was a an old-fashioned farm it was a small farm a sustainable what we, today we would call a you know multi-crop multi-animal a, a sustainable farm and um, I just connected with the natural world and was always interested in noticing the world around me and paying attention to growing things. Um, And I I got that from my father. He was the same way. One story I talk about in the book is um, when, when I was growing up, my dad and I would ride around these country roads in Georgia, running errands or going to see somebody. And he would just swerve over to the side of the road and see some plant that he wanted he would gather seed or he would tie a little plastic piece of flag tape um, on a stick or something nearby. So he would know to come back when it went to seed or to dig it up, you know, dig up a bulb or a tuber in the fall. And just that idea that as you as a forager know that all around us in the natural world is beauty and use things that can be useful, things that can be eaten, things that can be enjoyed. And and that is what is the basis of um, Southern apples, of farmers over 300 years, black, white, and indigenous farmers, noticing the world around them and noticing the vast number of seedling apple trees, selecting ones that they desired, that they found a use for, or they like the flavor, and then replicating them, and sometimes naming them for themselves, <laughs> like Grimes Golden, named for Thomas Grimes, who who discovered that apple, but often naming them for place names, or um, you know, for what flavor they conferred, or for their season. So I I came to apples through the natural world but also through a deep appreciation of what they tell us about the relationship between apples and people and therefore a region, a place, you know, a place in the world. 
Yeah. And I, I have to go ahead and dive into the book, the first chapter, um, wild. The very first thing that I learned that I never knew about apples was that every apple is unique. And yeah, that leads us to sex, you know, apple sex. (laughs) Apples are what are scientists call heterozygous, which is what humans are. So that just means we reproduce sexually. And so the offspring of an apple, of course, is not the fruit, it's the seeds. And each seed in every apple, every apple is a brand new apple to the universe, just like a child is a brand new human. And, you know, for us to get to the point where we have, you know, you can go to the grocery store and you have certain number of varieties, but you have quite a lot. If you think about the fact that apples are individually unique, how do we get to just mass amounts of, you know, Fuji, Granny Smith, all these other apples that we're really used to? And that, that's a concept that can be difficult to wrap your head around because we see so few varieties, but a seed grown tree, we call a seedling, and it is a unique you know, set of genetic material, the, the parents of, of, of um, whatever pollen that bee brought to the, to the, um, to the bloom. Um, the way that you, so that's reproduction, replication, is a genetic replication. We might also call it cloning. And that is, and humans have known how to replicate or graft apple trees for over 2000 years. So to replicate a tree and the fruit on it, that particular apple, you propagate through tissue, through tissue propagation. And that is, um, has been, that's called grafting, um, and there are several ways to to do that. But we've known how to do it for thousands of years, and you sometimes see it in nature. It sounds like you walk around in nature a lot, and sometimes you'll see two branches that have rubbed together on a tree and have broken that outer bark and have come down to the living tissue of the tree, and then they've fused and grown together. So it's easy even to observe grafting in nature. And grafting is the um, is, is replication. So if you were um, in the natural world, a, a farmer in the 17th or 18th century, and you had a seedling orchard or you had wild trees growing all around you, which the South had everywhere from Mississippi through Alabama and Georgia, South Carolina, coastal North Carolina, Virginia, the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia. All of this was apple territory, not just the mountains south, the whole south. And you noticed an apple that it tasted really great, or maybe it came in May or June. Maybe it was an early season apple and you were really desirous of, of fruit you know, in June, and this was the only fruit around in June. The way you got more of that was you you replicated it with tissue propagation, a grafting. Also, um, in the in those centuries, um, you could also pull up root suckers, um, and that's how you got that apple. And people often, you know, as I said earlier, put their name on it, and that's how we get so many Granny Smiths and so many Golden Delicious apples. That's 
and those are grafted commercially and every single one of them is tissue tissue grafted in some way uh, bud grafting is also a technique that's used commercially it's a little bit faster than than uh, uh cleft grafting yeah yeah. People and um, apples are deeply connected. You talk about, um, you know, I, I don't think most people would think of the South and apples. If you would walk us a little bit through the early history of the South um, and apples and who was growing these sure. apples. Sure. Well, one of the first things readers will be interested in learning is that apples, the apple we think of, Malus domestica, is not native to North America. There are uh, uh, four, three or four native crab apples. Uh, one in the south is called Malus angustifolia, and it actually is being used now by uh, apple breeders to to use genetic material from that native southern crab apple because it's very resistant to certain di diseases that are becoming a big problem because of um, climate warming. Um, so. The apple, as we know it, the, the Malus domestica came to North America in several ways, um, could have come um, from Florida in the 1500s. Peaches certainly came with the Spanish and Portuguese, and apples could have come as well. Apples travel with mammals, humans, and animals, and in early colonial days, hogs ran wild. They were farms were not fenced, and hogs were big spreaders of, of fruit, peaches and, and apples. Apples also arrived in North America with the um, Portuguese and Northern European cod fishermen who left seeds on the islands of Maine, and apples could have traveled down the Appalachians, the spine of the Appalachians on indigenous trading routes. But Regardless of all that, which we don't know and may never be able to put a thumbtack in, we do know that the first planted orchard in North America, planted out in you know in an organized way, was in Jamestown, Virginia. Um, that the orchards in Jamestown predated the Massachusetts orchards that are often touted as the first the first orchards in the country. The first named apple was most likely the Virginia white apple, which is now extinct. Um, long before Roxbury Rosset, the, the Massachusetts apple that often is called the first named American apple. I've been accused of writing a version of my big fat Greek wedding in this book because I do try to bust a lot of myths. And the, you know, the South uh, was settled early um, the South remained in farming, in agriculture longer. And the South was home not just to plantations uh, that used the labor of enslaved people, but many small farmers and all farmers, black, white, and indigenous, had a role in, in selecting Southern apples. And you had mentioned the role of enslaved people in in apple growing in the colonial era. And, and that is certainly true. The large plantation, the large orchards, uh, mostly in Virginia, with thousands and thousands of apple trees. Uh, some of them were even fenced with locust fences. Um, those, the, the labor of those 
portraits was provided at first by indentured servants and, and later by enslaved people. Cider was as common in, in colonial South. Um, it was so common it was used as currency, like tobacco. People paid for things in cider. You know, cider and orchards appear in wills and real estate advertisements and it, they cider and apples were both ubiquitous in the early South. And that that fruit stayed important to Southerners in, in a very intimate way longer than in other regions. And I'll, I'll give one example that I think illustrates that. You may remember this from the book, the, the, the topic of family apples. One of my uh, friends and colleagues in North Carolina, a nurseryman in Rockingham County, North Carolina, David Vernon, operates a wonderful fruit tree nursery called Century Farm Nursery. And he grew up in that Piedmont part of North Carolina, eating an apple called the Mary Reed apple. And David thought everybody in the South had a Mary Reed apple. And he came, he learned that only his family had a Mary Reed apple. And in fact, there were only two trees of the Mary Reed apple. And that that discovery, uh, you know, sparked. It was one of the reasons he became interested in having a fruit tree nursery. He's been very successful at it. But the South had had many, many what I would call hyper local apples or family apples. The Farrow family in Georgia saved an apple called Sam. They called it the Sam apple. The barriers in Virginia saved an apple through generation and generation and generation called Davidson Sweeting. The um, oh, in North Carolina, the Aunt Sally apple was only grown in Chatham County. So you see all over the in in Alabama, outside of um, Gadsden, the Divine apple was named for a family named Divine, and that was grown just in that little local area. And all of these apples, you know, maybe they weren't the best apple in the world, but they had a familial connection, historical connection, a personal connection, that connection between people and apples that so interested me and inspired me to research and write this book. And I think that's so, it just goes back to each apple being its own its own individual, I guess, for lack of a better term. But, you know, the other thing that I you pointed out that I really found interesting is that Southern apples, uh, you know, the first commercial orchard uh, was in the South. Um, I believe in 1850, 1851, somewhere around that. And then by 1905, the, it was the largest commercial orchard in the world, which is not the story that I had in my head at all. Right, right, right. There's so many. Uh, that's the subtitle of the book, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And I hope if readers take away anything, it's it's a, a, a renewed vision of, of apples. And apples are such a mythologized ingredient you know that we 
every every fall we read stories about Johnny Appleseed and you know John Adams drank a tank of cider every morning and the same stories get trotted out and I wanted to you know bust those myths and show the complexity of this fruit but also in doing that make the point that you know the world is complex everything deserves a deeper dive and a closer look and everything you know the world around us deserves to be noticed and we are enriched by that noticing and and by that dive and i think by reading about um surprising things that surprise us in the world um the a couple other things that that always seem to strike people as 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 surprising about apples in the south there were several nurseries in the 19th century that were quite prominent they sold apples in the region but also exported apples to many states and in some cases exported apple tree when i say apples apple trees apple trees um to other countries um, one of those um i think the first really prominent one was called pomaria nursery and it's outside columbia south carolina and many of the apples in those old catalogs from the 1800s were apples that were replicated by south carolina farmers by small farmers in places like Edisto, South Carolina, which is sandy soil. It's it's the coastal plain. Um, and they were named apples like Hoover and Ferdinand. And, um, that the other uh, or the other nursery that was so important in southern agricultural history was outside Augusta, Georgia, called um, uh, Fruitlands. That nursery uh, lasts until the 20th century. They really changed the, the landscape of the South. They were um, popularized many peach varieties, sold hundreds at one point, you know, over 400 apple varieties they offered in their nursery catalog and also sold um, landscape uh, plants um, for, on, in their horticultural division. The owner of that nursery was a Belgian immigrant, an aristocratic Belgian immigrant, um, Jules Prosper Alphonse Berkmans. And he started the nursery on a farm owned by um, a journalist, an agricultural writer named De Dennis Redman, who had built a very inventive home made of concrete uh, and Berkman's moved into that home and lived there and operated the nursery all around it and that home today is a much altered version is the clubhouse for the Augusta National Golf Course that is the just... landscape that, <laughs> and the landscape that everyone sees when they see the masters was the most important fruit tree nursery in the south and and once you know had acres and acres of you know over 400 kinds of apples growing on that soil now not a edible plant in sight but <laughs> it is preserved yeah and you say um you know in the book you talk about i kind of fell in love with all these different varieties of apples from the 18th and 19th century and then we get a little further down in the book and you know most of those are extinct today um many are and the the section um called lost i 
touch on a few of the factors that led to a very rapid decline in diversity. And it's, it's a decline we see in other areas of agriculture as well. But it was particularly, I think, precipitous in the South. And I think um, represents a loss of culture and history. And that's one reason I wanted to highlight that in a 50 to 60 year period when the South lost hundreds of, of apple varieties. Um, there, there are many factors. It's, it's like it's, people often ask, well, why did the South lose all those apples? And I, my answer is, it's complicated <laughs> because there were many, many reasons. Uh, the, the overarching reason is that we lost our farms. We lost the concept of small farms that grew a, a multitude of crops and many of those crops being used by the farmers, the farm families themselves. Farming became a business. It was a force of modernity, perhaps inevitable. So farmers had to consider growing what could most profitably be grown on their farm. Not everything that could be grown, but what they could grow for money. And apples became segregated into parts of the South where nothing else could be grown commercially. And that was the mountain hillsides and coves. And that's where we see apples segregated to higher elevations where cotton and corn, and uh, in some cases, some kinds of some, there is some mountain tobacco, but but not the kind of tobacco that's planted in, uh, in the coastal plain. So just the forces of you know, off-farm migration, other forces of modernity, another big issue was the rise of the Pacific Northwest as an apple growing region. It's um, it just kind of ideal territory out there. And there were some government policies and, and immigration patterns that advantaged fruit production in Oregon and Washington. And then when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, they were able to ship apples back. And then when we got refrigerated rail cars, that really was a major blow to orchards all along the East Coast, New York State down, because Washington and, and Oregon then was still producing apples, could grow apples so easily in that high desert when you irrigate that, there's no humidity. There's plenty of sun. There are cool nights. Um, apples like um, what's called a diurnal swing, which is a, the difference between daytime highs and nighttime lows. Fruit likes that. Berries, grapes, certainly. That's why some of the best grape-growing regions in the world are maritime climates or regions where you have hot, sunny days and then everything cools off at night. Fruit loves that. Apples love that. Um, and um, it was it was difficult for the South to compete. And we lost many orchards because of that competition. And the orchards that we had shifted. They had to find a path, an economic path. Uh, one economic path that I write about in the book is um, that, that growers, especially in Virginia and North Carolina, turned to growing processing fruit and some of the biggest uh, fruit processors in the world had plants around Winchester, Virginia and Hendersonville, North Carolina, Gerber and uh, 
McDonald's, standard foods. And you know, if you've ever, you know, as a young person, ate apples out of a can or had an apple pie made with canned apples, those apples came from either Winchester or Hendersonville because those plants were enormous. And uh, in Winchester today, Andros, um, which is a, a global uh, food processing company, they still have big plants there and they make baby food and applesauce and these markets also West Virginia had cider uh, apple vinegar, um, big plants that that made apple apple cider vinegar. So that was a way for the South to have a market for apples and have a little bit um, less expensive growing, but it led to a real concentration of varieties. You see a York is widely, was widely planted in Virginia as a processing apple. It's, um, it's big, there's a lot of flesh. Um, there's a small ca seed cavity, so there's a lot of flesh. It's a beautiful kind of a golden yellow flesh that makes a beautiful applesauce color, you know, beautifully colored applesauce. So you saw a real change in the idea that you had 30, 40 trees on your farm to provide food from May, June, you know, those June apples, all the way through May with those late storing apples you picked in November that will store in the root cellar till till May. It's a there's a real difference between viewing your orchard as providing food for a family or community, as providing apples that are used to be dried, to be canned, to be made into applesauce at home. Um, to be stored, to be enjoyed each month, and then for the long-storing apples to be ones that would really last in a root cellar or in a hayrick or in a hearth pit for months and months and months. So that concept of farming became a thing of the past. And in that, we lost our uses. Why grow an apple that was selected to be dried and really doesn't taste that great as a fresh apple. Why grow that if you didn't dry apples anymore? And then today, why, when you have at grocery, we have apples in the grocery store all year from other countries, why do you need to have an apple for every month? You know, the South had an apple for every month, had more than more than one apple for every month. And so it's those changes in, in lifestyle and habit. And the loss there is. It, it's to me, it's not just the loss of a fruit. I mean, I, I grow the horse apple, which is actually a good apple for cider. And it was widely grown for um, drying. It's a big, big apple and has dense, finely grained flesh, which means it's it's good for drying. And, you know, would the world come to an end if we didn't have the horse apple? Probably not. But it it was grown by Southerners for 300 years. There's a lot of history there. It's a valuable fruit in and of itself, but it's also is a receptacle, you know, not just for flavor and uses, but for memories. Yeah. And you make that point that every apple ha that has a name had to have been chosen. You, you don't have a named apple without a person naming it. And ch by choosing that apple, we're, we're kind of revealing what our value system is you know, where, where we're putting importance and, 
and somehow we got to, you know, the red delicious apple today, which I don't know what that says about our value system. But it's about ka-ching, ka-ching. It's, a, it's about making money at some point. Um, another piece of the Southern apple story that was surprising to me is the role of indigenous people in growing fruit in the South. And when apples arrived, um, indigenous groups in the South were already using over 200 species of plants for food and medicine and in, in their culture. So they were, they, they were cultivating mulberry trees by removing competition, harvesting in an organized way. So they were primed to receive peaches and apples and became great growers of this fruit. And by the 17, early 1700s, all indigenous groups in the East were growing apples. And the, the farmers in the South, uh, indigenous farmers were very, very skilled. And at the time of Indian removal, the Indian Removal Act of 1836, which decreed the what became a violent expulsion of remaining most remaining indigenous groups from, from the South, that ended that vast experiment um, with um, Native Americans and fruit. It was especially um, especially well documented in Georgia. Georgia had the largest indigenous population in the East at the time of the Indian Removal Act. And in just one fell swoop, almost all of the Cherokee people were violently expelled from their homes, um, land they had occupied for thousands of years, and then land that they actually owned by treaty with, with uh, white colonizers. So we know the details of this, the really intimate details of this, because the federal valuators came into Cherokee communities after the Cherokee were removed, um, came in and made and valued and made note of the possessions of the homes, the looms, the kitchen utensils, the farm tools, the wagons, the horses, the mules, the orchards. And we know that over half of the Cherokee households in Georgia had mature orchards. And by mature, that looks something different than an orchard today because they were growing their apples on their own roots. So they were not dwarfed in any way. Most, you know, all the commercial plantings today are, are on a rootstock, grafted onto a rootstock that reduces the size of the tree so it's more easily managed. These trees would have been giant. They would have been 30, 40 feet tall. Mature, so that's what I mean by mature or orchard, really big trees. And the small farms might have had 30 or 40 apple trees. A major ridges, large farm, had a thousand peach trees and almost 500 apple trees. And so here's where the Cherokee apple story gets messy. The, um, there was a, a white nurseryman from Clarksville, Georgia who several years after Indian removal traveled into the Cherokee land and gathered apples and grafting wood. He brought this back to his nursery, which was called Gloaming Nursery, there in Little Clarksville, Georgia. And he introduced those apples to the nursery trade. And he named them. He put his names on them. Um, he chose Cherokee place names. Um, and he also made up names. There was one apple that was a especially good 
long keeping apple. He named it Mountain Bell. But there was Kulasaga, Kitagiski, um, Junalaska um, was named for a Cherokee leader who actually you know, fought and legislated his way back to reclaim some of his land and his apple tree in, uh, in North Carolina. But um, within about 15 years, those Cherokee grown apples had achieved great, great respect within the apple community in America. The top palmologists of the day, uh, Downing and others, were writing about Southern apples and saying that these Cherokee apples were the pinnacle of Southern fruit. And great that we know we can taste some of those apples today, that we know what they look like, we know what they are, but what we've lost is why they are. We don't know why a Cherokee person selected that apple and chose to replicate it. We don't know much about how um, that apple was used. Um, we know a little bit, but not much. And, and we've lost the, the intimate stories of those fruit. That, that's, a, that's a hole in our history. And in writing this book, I really tried to look not just at the wonderful material that's in so many archives across the South, the, the great farm journals and the, the journals that reveal things about slavery and, and the early South, the, the correspondence of, of later apple growers and the the nursery catalogs from these wonderful nurseries all over the South. You know, I learned from that, but I also tried to find out what's not there. And, and I think even if you can't discover and fill the hole, it's important to look at the vacancy and that, that lack of knowledge can tell us something. So where are we today with Southern apples? Well, one of the things that the University of North Carolina Press asked me to do when I sent in this book proposal, was that they said, you've got to have a section on 21st century orchards in the South. And that's why we have a chapter or a section called Revived. And I touch on not all, but, but some of the, um, I think, most interesting ways that Southerner, Southern orchardists and Southern orchards are surviving. One is through preservation orchards. And these are more than apple zoos because they're all dedicated to educating uh, home gardeners and commercial gardeners and uh, sharing information. Um, Horn Creek Farm in North Carolina has the Southern Historic Apple Orchard. Over 300 varieties of apple apples are housed there and maintained and the public can come and view them. They have apple tastings and grafting workshops. There's another wonderful, fairly new um, historic orchard in North Georgia, the Georgia Heritage Orchard in Blairsville. Um, it's um, just a great repository of apples that originated in Georgia, many uh, Cher many that carry Cherokee names. Um, there's research being done all over the South. That's another way that you see Southern orchards growing. Um, Jeff Wheeler at the University of Kentucky is testing cider apple varieties as a way to help keep orchards in that state alive and viable. Another trend that you see in some orchards in the South is, is what I'd call a tourism model. 
um, there's a bright orchard, a, uh, a fourth generation now orchard in North Georgia called Mercier. And it's about 70 or 80 miles from Atlanta, an easy drive, pretty drive up through North Georgia. And they get thousands and thousands of people on fall weekends um, come to that orchard and go. They have a U-Pick orchard. They have a, a great market with many, many varieties. They have some old varieties, but they have a lot of new varieties as well because people come back and they want to try something new. They make their own cider. They do a beautiful job making hard cider. And they sell um, apple hand pies, which are beautiful and delicious and, and a real uh, tradition of Appalachia, of having a, a, a hand pie that you can pick up and eat out of your hand. So lots of different ways that, that Southern orchards are uh, continuing to find paths to, to survive um, and thrive. You have a lot of... Um really beautiful stories about preserving apples and and just telling the stories of the apples in the book. Um, and as we wrap up here, I just want to ask, is there anything that you didn't get to put in the book that you really want to share? Or is there anything that you really want us to take away from this book? You know, I hope reading this book inspires people to explore the world around them more closely. I mean, of course, visit some of these historic apple orchards and, and, and uh, you know, read and learn about apples from your county and, and perhaps even from your family. But I think more important is to notice the world around you, not just, not just apples, but pay attention to what, what the farmers in your area are growing. Visit a farmer's market and, and look at the, the diversity of plants that they're offering for your use and try something new. You know, everybody around here likes a, a half runner bean, green bean in the summer. And I love a half runner. I think it is a wonderful bean, but there are so many other beans grown um, that are you know historic to the area or even new varieties that are worth experimenting with. And open yourself, I, I hope, this book opened me, you know, I had been growing apples in the South for 25 years when I started researching this book. And I found out I didn't know very much at all. And I felt, uh, I feel enriched by this writing effort. And I hope by reading this book, uh, readers will feel enriched and inspired to go out and explore their own landscape. It might not be apples. It might not even be anything edible. But there's a whole world out there that is worth a deep dive. Very well said. <laughs> Thank you, Diane, so much for talking about this book. I really hope that a lot of people read it because I couldn't even get to half the facts that I thought were extremely fascinating in it. <laughs> well, thanks for your enthusiasm. And I can see you're a careful reader. And, and I hope our paths cross in person. And I hope that... Um, you find some of those Colorado apples and explore the, the two preservation projects that sound like they might be close to you. I definitely, definitely will. 